Welcome to Middle East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 80 for August 15, 2021. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. How will America's choice to withdraw military forces from Afghanistan and the manner of our withdrawal over the course of the last two presidential administrations affect America's standing in the wider Middle East? How will our partners and adversaries on the ground in the Middle East hotspots view American commitment and credibility in light of the rapid fall of Kabul? And how will Russia's increasingly assertive Middle East policy adjust in light of these events in nearby Afghanistan? Without further ado, let's get into a conversation with three Washington Institute scholars with personal experience on the ground in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in the halls of power in Washington and Brussels. Just one note, due to a technical problem, audio of one of our speakers has some noise on the line. And now, our conversation, recorded just prior to the Taliban seizure of Kabul today. Today, I'm joined by Washington Institute scholars Anna Borshevskaya, Bilal Wahab, and Catherine Wheelbarger. Anna is a senior fellow who focuses on Russia's policy toward the Middle East. Earlier in her career, she served as an analyst for U.S. military contractors in Afghanistan. Anna, welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Bilal Wahab is the Nathan and Esther K. Wagner Fellow at the Institute, where he focuses on Iraq, a country from which he recently returned from an extended visit. Bilal, welcome. Good to be with you, Scott. Catherine Wheelbarger is the Rosenblatt Visiting Fellow at the Institute. From 2017 to 2020, she served as Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Katie, welcome. Thank you, Scott, for your time today. We are speaking mid-afternoon on Thursday, August 12, 2021. In the last week, Taliban forces have seized control of several Afghan provincial capitals. India has dispatched military aircraft to evacuate its citizens from Afghanistan, and the U.S. government has urged American civilians to leave Afghanistan. All of this is happening while U.S. military forces are in the final stages of a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan, set to be finished by early September. These fast-moving events amount to a tragedy for many Afghan people, but the end of America's longest military commitment will have ripple effects around the world, including in the broader Middle East, where American forces have been involved in several conflicts and combat operations since the start of operations in Afghanistan in 2001. So we've assembled an A-team of Middle East experts to dig into how the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan will affect American Mideast policy in the months and the years to come. Bilal, I want to start with you. Barely a year after the United States committed military forces to Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban government that sheltered al-Qaeda, Washington turned to a new mission of removing Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. Since the 2003 invasion, U.S. forces have withdrawn from Iraq only to return to help defeat the Islamic State insurgency after 2014. U.S. forces have since been involved in several missions on both sides of the Iraqi-Syrian border. And you were recently in Iraq for an extended visit. Has the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan had any effects on the ground in Iraq? Uh, that's an excellent question, Scott. Uh, the news actually has sent chills down the spine of America's friends in Iraq. Um, because it has also given them deja vu of the last U.S. withdrawal uh, in 2011, December of 2011, which uh, obviously only a uh, couple of years later, ISIS managed to occupy a third of the country, which then compelled the United States forces to get back into Iraq 
and helped the Iraqi forces and the Kurdish Peshmerga forces to defeat ISIS. And yet here we are again, where Iran and Iran's proxies in Iraq are pressuring the United States to withdraw. And uh, there is an Iraqi state, an Iraqi government that's trying to withstand that pressure from uh, from the neighbor and from uh, the neighbor's allies and proxies in the country's body politics. So uh, the, the, the fact that the U.S. is not only willing, but also eager to withdraw from Afghanistan, and not on Afghan terms, not uh, on benchmarks, security, capacity, and effectiveness benchmarks, but almost purely on, on U.S. terms and U.S. political terms, uh, is, is really uh, causing a lot of... Um, um, it, it, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in such a fashion is causing a lot of distress among America's uh, friends in Iraq and, and the Iraqi government, the Iraqi military, and the Kurdistan regional government. This is also in part because uh, Washington is trying to transition to a normal relationship with Iraq. However, this normalcy is not something that the Iraqis have a sense about. Finally, perhaps, uh, is American politics is becoming so unpredictable uh, that, that has become very difficult for the Iraqis to adjust to the swings of U.S. national security priorities. Just look at the transition from Obama to Trump and now to Biden. So the Iraqi leaders feel that they are at a loss. Uh, it's also not lost on Iraqis and Iraqi leaders uh, to notice the uh, the main outcome of the strategic dialogue that took place last month uh, between Iraq and the United States. The main outcome was that the United States was somehow asked and perhaps forced to commit uh, to uh, a deadline by which the United States would withdraw all of its combat forces. And uh, again, uh, some Iraqis think that who is more eager? Is it the Iranian pressure on the United States and the Iraqi government to put an end to the U.S.-Iraq military relationship? Or is it Washington that's also equally eager to, uh, to withdraw? So all in all, um, a lot of distress, a lot of discomfort, and um, questioning uh, American commitment to Iraqi security and the bilateral relationship. Is that uh, playing out politically in Iraq among the political parties, as well as in the government versus the militia scenario? It's definitely good news for, for the militias. It's good news for Iran, because uh, they have always argued, Iran has always argued that we are here to stay by uh, force of geography. And all you need to do is not lose to the Americans and the staying power will automatically result in a victory. Obviously, the militias and Iran, they're not interested in seeing the Iraqi people prosper economically. They're not interested in Iraqi security. They're interested in power and milking the, uh, the coffers of Iraq's oil wealth economy. The uh, nationalist forces, and that includes some uh, significant elements in the Iraqi body politics, but also a uh, protest movement that emerged in October 2019 that has really uh, shocked the Iraqi political system. And they demand change. They demand the government that's accountable. They demand Iran's influence to be curbed. And they demand an Iraqi government that is more loyal to the Iraqi needs and interests than Tehran's. Uh, and all of that depends on the security umbrella that Washington has provided Iraq with in the de-ISIS campaign, but also in building 
the capacity of the Iraqi forces to stand up to uh, these militias who seek to create a, a, a parallel state. And of course, to an Iran that wants to make sure that Iraq will never be able to economically and politically and militarily to ever pose a challenge to uh, Iran again. And of course, beyond Iran and the neighbors, the local actors are looking for uh, alternative patrons. So some are looking at Turkey, for example. Uh, the militias uh, already look at Iran and they have Iran as a patron. The KRG is looking increasingly at Turkey. Uh, others look at some Gulf countries. Some of the Sunni groups look at Gulf countries, for instance. But then, of course, you have China and Russia also present. Russia has invested significantly in Iraq's oil and gas sector. Uh, people look how Russia is committed to the survival of the Bashar Assad regime in Syria. And then China is also investing billions of dollars in trying to tie Iraq to the uh, Road and Belt, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, as well as uh, a deal with the former Iraqi Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi, dubbed Oil for Development. So any vacuum that the United States is going to leave in Iraq will not be filled by Iraqi nationalists or the Iraqi government, but rather by elements that Washington may not find all that savory. Well, Katie, uh, you've you've dealt uh, significantly with U.S. relationships with various uh, allies and alliances. So what, if anything, can Washington do on the ground in Iraq now to offer reassurance or support to our partners on the ground? Sure. Thank you. That's a good question, um, because I am very interested in seeing how our partners and allies around the world continue to address the terrorism threat, which is, of course, a global challenge. I think first I'll step back and add a little bit to the strategic dialogue. Having participated in a, a similar strategic dialogue with Iraq when I was in the government for the Department of Defense, um, as Bilal said, of course, there are qu continued questions and consternations about what the U.S. role will be. But there are, I think, some positive aspects that came out of the dialogue. And the key point that I stress is that you know, we are, both the United States and the coalition and also NATO, in Iraq at the invitation of the Iraqi government. It's to our benefit and to the Iraqi political system's benefit for us to constantly reinforce that what we strive for is an independent, secure, stable Iraq. That we, Again, that we continue to be there at the, at the uh, invitation of the Iraqi people. And so to the extent the mission has changed over the course of the last five years, we have constantly adapted what our force presence would be to address the mission. At this point, uh, combat operations for the U.S.-led combat operations had largely ended a while ago. So announcing the change to uh, focus primarily on a train and equip and support mission, I think, is is highlighting in some ways that we continue to have a appreciation that there needs to be a long-term U.S. and coalition presence in the country. And I think that coalition and NATO presence in Iraq takes on significantly more importance given our drawdown in Afghanistan, because there are there will be ripple effects, as you said, to potential growing instability and security challenges emanating from Afghanistan. So the continued center of gravity of our participation in Iraqi security continues to be of heightened importance. And I was, um, I did see that NATO announced that they are going to be looking to increase their, uh, the security forces in the NATO Iraq mission from 400 to 4,000. I'd be interested if Bilal heard anything about that during his trip to Iraq, whether that is seen as a positive um, development for the Iraqi people. But I do see continued commitment from our NATO 
partners and allies to the continued security and stability to Iraq. That's a train and equip mission. It was designed as one. But seeing increased ally participation in the stability of Iraq, I think, is a, a positive uh, development. I do think the United States can continue to provide significant support to our NATO partners there. There are certain capabilities that the United States brings that our NATO uh, allies simply do not have in the same numbers, particularly things like medevac and other air support capabilities. So I do think there are ways that we can continue to be present in terms of a uh, train and equip mission, but also have assets and capabilities available to assist our partners and allies who are continuing to focus on Iraqi security. Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and of course, uh, Katie, the, uh, uh, what you outlined is, is the crux of the strategic dialogue. Uh, however, that alone uh, is somehow lost in translation when the news of withdrawing from Afghanistan broke. All of that detail, all of that, uh, not so much nuance, but the essence, the crux of the U.S. military presence, the transition from uh, the, the ISIS mission into helping the Iraqi uh, state security have the capacity to, to stand on its own feet, not only the fight against ISIS, but any other threat to the Iraqi state, is crucial, and it is indeed what Iraq needs. It is indeed uh, what the bilateral relationship needs for it to be, quote unquote, normal and uh, to have sustainability and resilience. However, the news of unilateral withdrawal from Afghanistan without any specific benchmark is what is sending the chills down the spine of the, uh, of the Iraqi uh, uh, government and Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish uh, government, because it really uh, sheds a light on the level of not only security commitment, but political commitment. And, uh, and, and of course, the, the conversation out of Washington, the rhetoric out of Washington about reorienting priorities and great power competition, and of course, the waning influence of oil, the uh, peace process, and uh, Abraham Accords, all of that sends indications to some of the Iraqi leaders that Washington is really looking to disengage from the region. And so they look around for an alternative patron. So specific to your question, uh, Katie, about NATO, that is a, a, that's a question that only comes up at a very high level of politics. It's not something that has really come up in the Iraqi press that much or in normal conversations in the hallways of the parliament or even uh, with some Iraqi leaders, because at the end of the day, many Iraqis look to the United States for leadership. And when they look at NATO, they can only count on NATO as long as the United States is committed. Well, below you had mentioned Moscow as a potential uh, alternate patron for some groups inside Iraq. And indeed, we have seen uh, that, that Russia has been uh, more active and adventuresome across the Middle East, uh, economically uh, and in particular militarily, with with troops on the ground in multiple countries and increasing arms sales even to American allies and partners. So, Anna, I'd, I'd love to hear from you what you think Russia's Middle East policy is going to do in light of the U.S. departure from Afghanistan as as it looks to uh, uh, potentially a new situation in the Middle East. 
Sure, it's a, it's a great question, Scott. Uh, I don't think uh, Russia is going to fundamentally uh, change its position. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, some of these events that you point to, Russia's more recent uh, activity in the Middle East is also not necessarily new as much as part of a broader trend. What I do think is incredibly significant, uh, though, um, uh, uh, with regard to to our withdrawal, is uh, and, and this, by the way, builds on on Bilal's point um, uh, that I'd that I'd like to discuss at, at length, uh, if I may. Um, uh, is it sends a message uh, to both our adversaries, our and our enemies, as well as uh, our allies, um, uh, and that is exactly what Bilal has uh, earlier talked about, and that is a message of disengagement, mm-hmm. it, which uh, requires. Uh, 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 our, at least in the interpretation of our allies, of our partners in the region, uh, to look for a new patron. Uh, and Moscow is already there. Fundamentally, uh, what the, what this, uh, withdrawal also signals, um, is that, uh, Russia's, uh, longstanding, uh, uh, aims to play a quote unquote peacemaker or mediator, uh, in the region will likely receive more, uh, more attention. For one thing, uh, when it comes to Afghanistan in particular, Russia has long since uh, had an open channel of communication to the Taliban. It actually goes back as early as 2007. Um, this is something that most uh, uh, sources tend to miss. They usually uh, start talking about Russia's contact with the Taliban in, in only in more recent years. Russia also hosted a number of peacemaking uh, conferences and had a number of other meetings with the Taliban um, just last month. Uh, Lavrov met with the Taliban and uh, uh, said that they were, quote, sane people, uh, and also that the Taliban promised to fight ISIS uh, without uh, compromises, as it was quoted in, in the Russian language press. Um, and so this brings me to my next uh, uh, point, and that is uh, uh, a Russian uh, narrative of, of fighting terrorism uh, in the Middle East. Recall that uh, Russian officials uh, say they went into Syria to fight terrorism. They they uh, uh, justify many of their activities with uh, with fighting terrorism, and you know the point about these claims is that they're not necessarily uh, entirely incorrect. Russia certainly uh, faces uh, faced real uh, problems from uh, from uh, radical Sunni uh, uh, groups. Uh, however. Uh, Russia's actual record when it comes to fighting uh, terrorism is, uh, at well, at the very least, underwhelming. And we can certainly talk about Syria uh, and the, the difference between Russia's rhetoric and reality uh, and in other parts of the Middle East. That also applies, frankly, to, uh, to Afghanistan as well. Uh, what I do think uh, might happen is Russia might continue building on this narrative of Russia as a bulwark against Sunni terrorism. Um, it's a narrative that does receive uh, a lot of uh, positive attention in the Middle East. Uh, also a narrative of Russia that uh, as, as somebody who does not abandon its partners and allies, mm-hmm. unlike the United States, which is doing just that uh, in, in Afghanistan. So uh, I think, uh, you know, from a big picture perspective, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, Scott, this, 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 this move reverberates globally. We're talking about... Um, our diminished capacity uh, to leverage uh, events on the ground. And uh, uh, given uh, Putin's uh, zero-sum outlook and approach to foreign policy, what if uh, any American losses, Russia's gain? And so I think you can expect Russia to capitalize on that. But that's that's not going to um, uh, fundamentally shift Russia's Middle East position. 
Katie, we've we've seen in in the last eighteen months or so um, fairly aggressive Russian moves to sell uh, sophisticated weapons systems to several American partners, including to Turkey and to Egypt. Does that represent uh, American partners looking to diversify their portfolios, as it were, among potential patrons? We have seen, as you said, uh, Russia looking to sell more capable uh, defense capabilities to our partners and other countries in the region. The Turkey example that you highlight, it has been a specific and very acute challenge for the United States and NATO, given that this is, unlike some Russian relationships, this was um, a significant purchase that was turning somewhat turning away from NATO partnership and turning to Russia, whereas other partners in the region or uh, in the world, you may see just advancing Russian relationship. So the Turkey example in particular, as, as the press has made very clear, has caused significant challenges for our interoperability and our ability to sell certain weapon systems to Turkey. And I do think that's a that's going to be a burgeoning challenge for the United States as we seek to both rely heavily on partner capacity programs, meaning if we don't want to have as many forces in the region, we'd like to turn our relationships more focused on um, partner capacity and building weapons or selling weapon systems to our partners. The, the more heavily Russia is involved with those same partners or those partners look to Russia as another patron, it undermines our ability to do both because, um, again, because there are certain systems where we can't allow both the United States developed system and the Russian system to cooperate within the same, in the same country. It, beca it becomes too much of a, th a risk and threat to our own systems on which the United States uh, security and defense relies. I did want to respond in one way as well to what Bilal and Anna said with respect, with respect to whether or not this move in Afghanistan represents a uh, perce perception that we are turning away from the region. I think there was both the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and then there was also the way we withdraw, we decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. And particularly when looking at it as a, a, you know, a coalition warfare, our, how we treated our partners, uh, this was, of course, the first time and only time that NATO has invoked our collective self-defense provisions within the NATO Treaty, Article 5. And I have the sense that um, some of our allies were caught somewhat our guard, off guard by the decision and the speed with which we decided to do this withdrawal. And that really does undermine our ability to, to coalesce as, as an alliance in the future to address um, global threats together. So I, I do think there's ways that the United States can rationalize our footprint in the region that we can continue to address collectively security challenges. But when the United States does make unilateral decisions without sort of the level of sophisticated communication with our partners and allies that you would expect, it really does have not only near-term ramifications for the security in the region, but long-term ramifications for our ability to build the kind of coalitions that we need in order to face uh, growing threats around the region. Well, that leads nicely into uh, kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of issues in the Middle East uh, and, and potential fallout from Afghanistan. So most fundamentally, do you think that the, the, the decision and the manner of our Afghanistan withdrawal represents the potentially the freeing up of resources that we can apply to solving problems elsewhere, including in the rest of the Middle East? Or is it going to be seen as manifesting or even accelerating a trend toward the United States turning our national back on the region? I'll jump in again quickly. This is Katie. I think in some ways the goal of the Afghanistan withdrawal was to free up resources 
to address global challenges, particularly what we hear, you know, great power competition against um, Russia and China around the world. I do think, unfortunately, the, the method by which we have executed this withdrawal has actually placed increased resource burdens on our military in particular, but also our diplomatic corps, that I would be surprised if we actually saw any resource savings in the near term and potentially the long term. We hear much about being able to, to continue to address the the counterterrorism challenge in eastern Afghanistan in particular, which has been a hotbed of extreme activities for decades, that we can continue to address that challenge through sort of over-the-horizon counterterrorism operations. But we learned in Syria in the early days of the counter-ISIS strike, or excuse me, conflict, the ability to do over-the-horizon counterterrorism operations, meaning uh, address address terrorism threats without boots on the ground, places significant loads on our high-end assets, particularly our fighter and our bomber fleets, in ways that has decades-long ramifications for our readiness. Additionally, to the extent that we did not properly plan for the need for uh, refugee and the humanitarian crisis, and that we're now um, using our bases in the region as temporary or perhaps midterm locations for refugees from Afghanistan, that is also going to put a significant strain on our military and our forces in the region that have their hands full with the, in the security challenges of the region already. So I, I tend to doubt that we will actually be uh, saving many resources for the long term uh, with the, the method with which we have implemented this withdrawal. You know, to add to Katie's point uh, very quickly, when we tend to have these conversations about resources, too often we tend to think in generalities, at least when it comes to when it comes to public debate. The fact of the matter is when these discussions took place, the issue was uh, a, a fairly uh, it was not a discussion between all or nothing necessarily. And this goes to Katie's point about the way uh, we carried out this uh, this withdrawal. Many uh, uh, analysts said that with a small contingent of twenty five hundred American troops, we would be able to hold the Taliban at bay. That's that's a very small resource commitment. Um, and unfortunately, uh, this point gets lost uh, in the broader discussion. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why withdrawal, I think, is, is unfortunately so popular, because the perception of resources spent uh, is very different from reality. Looking to Iraq, the United States has already committed a full military withdrawal and then had to go back on it and is now in the process of slowly trying to uh, step back. How does the Afghanistan withdrawal, and, and I, I, I hate to entertain the uh, the possibility, but the potential fall of, of the capital and the current government uh, affect long-term official Iraqi relationships with an estimation of the seriousness of the United States? Uh, Scott, that very question is, is the subject of a, of a report that I have recently published about how the U.S.-Iraq relationship can find normalcy. Uh, Iran is hell-bent on ending the U.S.-Iraq relationship. They have already, through the security challenge and through uh, a campaign of assassinations, uh, of targeting anyone with contact with the U.S. programs, be it Fulbright scholarships, being training journalists and activists, uh, they have lowered the demand for that kind of activity through the security threat and of course exacerbated by COVID, the cultural exchange programs and student visas and tourist visas have uh, have come to a complete halt. Uh, the economic and, and trade relation is uh, other than oil, uh, some of which the United States buys from Iraq, 
is is rather minimal. Uh, the U.S.-Iraq trade relationship and business relationship is, in fact, very dismal. So the relationship is now uh, tied by a single thread of the military cooperation, whereby the United States helps Iraqi people, helps the Iraqi government and security forces to fight ISIS, to make sure that ISIS does not stand up back on its feet, and of course, to build the capacity uh, of the Iraqi security forces now against the next threat, which is a threat within, and that is the threat posed by the militias, as I highlighted earlier. Mm-hmm. So for for that threat to be thinning gives Iran the appetite. If Iran were to uh, push the Iraqi politics and the Iraqi groups, and it has done so by uh, uh, parliamentary action, by pressuring the KRG, for example, sending drones and rockets their way to join the other Shia groups and some Sunni groups who call for an end of the U.S. Uh, military presence in Iraq. Iran is basically thinking if they could put an end to that 2,500 soldiers, then that would be the end of U.S.-Iraq relationship. So the premise for the United States is the flip side of this, is if the United States is willing or looking into changing the nature of its military presence and military role in Iraq, then that cannot happen alone without focusing on the other aspects, on the cultural exchanges, on the diplomatic relationships, on political support for the Iraqi state, on uh, uh, boosting economic and and uh, and trade with the country. So for the relationship to be multifaceted, to be thickened, uh, otherwise this relationship is actually facing the danger of a rupture. And we saw, we got very close to that rupture when the militias were attacking uh, the U.S. embassy, the consulate, uh, the U.S., uh, the Iraqi bases that house uh, U.S. embassies. And we also saw how the United States, under that pressure, threatened uh, Secretary Pompeo, threatened to withdraw completely from Iraq. And that's not unheard of because under such pressure, uh, the United States shut down the consulate in Basra. So the relationship can be endangered. So it um, it really requires work both by back to see how this relationship can stand uh, on on multiple poles so it can have that resilience and that longevity because we have seen when the United States withdraws prematurely what happens. That was the experience of 2011 and the uh, emergence of ISIS. And now Iraq has a more dangerous uh, element, I would argue, a wealthier element, and that is the unruly militias that have a regional patron, that have acted as spoilers. Uh, so it it uh, it's really important for Washington and Baghdad, and of course Erbil here as well, to find a way that this relationship can be resilient, that can continue. And of course, the news out of Afghanistan is just uh, you know creating casting doubt on uh, on such a project. But I think the strategic dialogue, the uh, recent visit by the Iraqi Prime Minister to Washington, the messages of commitment from Washington to Baghdad and to Erbil are reassuring, but I think the Iraqi people uh, need to see more from Washington. And one perhaps good example that has recently happened is Washington committing to send uh, some COVID vaccines to the Iraqi people because for Iraqi democracy to really boost the U.S.-Iraq relationship, the Iraqi people must see the value of that Mm -hmm. U.S.-Iraq relationship. I will just add to what Bilal said about the United States, and I would argue other global partners needing to focus on aspects of our relationship with Iraqi beyond the security sector. 
I think it's one of the unfortunate outcomes of a lot of our diplomatic engagements is that the press tends to focus so heavily on troop presence, troop numbers, and precisely what they're doing, rather than if you saw the communique coming out of the strategic dialogue, both this one and previous ones, there, were, there really is an effort to focus on all of society within the Iraqi system, um, whether that be economics and commerce, support for the education system, as Bilal said, health care, and specifically the COVID vaccinations and almost the challenges posed by climate. We really are seeking to diversify and expand the relationship to be all of government, all of society, but it is um, an effort that I think both our governments need to do to make sure that message is brought home to the Iraqi people because as Bilal began, the militias that are seeking power within Iraq do not have the interest of all Iraqi people. They do not have the interest of a successful, stable governing uh, system or society. And that, that really is what the United States and our partners seek to bring or help bring to the Iraqi people. Uh, and I do think that unlike some of the debates within the United States system about our presence in, in Afghanistan, everything I have seen over the years is that there continues to be very strong bipartisan support for our, our continued Iraq, our presence in Iraq and our relationship with the Iraqis. That's across administrations and across parties. And so that is something I always strive to uh, impress upon the press that uh, this really is a, a relationship that we, we remain committed to for the long term and that we, we want to be able to help the Iraqis solve their security challenges so we can have the fulsome, uh, complete relationship for the Iraqi people as we have been attempting to do for years. Our discussions, in the uh, public discussions uh, over the years about Afghanistan uh, indeed have focused more on the military dimension. Uh, they've also focused a lot on uh, our failures, but uh, at least in my experience, what what uh, uh, what I think perhaps did not receive enough attention is our success. And that is, in Afghanistan in particular, uh, more than anybody uh, else, uniquely so, uh, was women. Uh, and I witnessed this myself uh, when I lived in Kabul. Uh, uh, young girls, uh, uh, women, uh, for, uh, received who disproportionately suffered uh, under the Taliban, who, who were the primary victims, received uh, opportunities that they that they could only dream of, and uh, they, they were able to go to school and have jobs. I, I, I visited a girls' school uh, in Afghanistan uh, myself when I was there. Uh, and that speaks directly to uh, American values, uh, Western values, uh, commitment to human rights uh, and, and democracy. Uh, and that is something uh, that is an aspect of relationship with the United States uh, that, of course, uh, translates in the Middle East as well. And, and uh, I think Bilal had alluded to that in, in, in his comments with uh, our capacity now diminished with 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 this withdrawal uh, with countries like Russia and perhaps to some extent China stepping in, uh, you're going to see very, very different relationships. You're going to see very uh, different consequences when it comes to values, when it comes to human rights. So uh, another way this is going to, uh, another area where this is going to spill over is uh, is counterterrorism. Um, be it, Russia talks a lot, R Russian officials talk a lot about fighting terrorism, but the fact of the matter is it's American-led efforts uh, that ultimately produced uh, genuine results. And in Syria in particular, um, uh, Russia never fought ISIS with any consistency. At, at times, if anything, Russian airstrikes, uh, Russian airstrikes indirectly strengthened uh, ISIS. So what you're going to see is also a less secure region, uh, more uh, proliferation of, uh, of terrorism, uh, and countries uh, such as Russia and China uh, that, uh, despite paying lip service to the importance 
to the importance of fighting uh, these forces uh, are not going to do anything about it. We've been speaking with Washington Institute scholars Anna Borshevskaya, Bilal Wahab, and Catherine Wheelbarger. You can follow Anna on Twitter at A-N-N-A-B-O-R-S-H and Bilal at B-I-L-A-L-W-A-H-A-B. We'll include a link to Bilal's recent study, Promoting Sovereignty and Accountability in Iraq, Guidelines for the Biden Administration, in today's show notes. Katie, Bilal, and Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Scott. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for live events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. <laughs>